Kids regularly don't understand what their parents are doing and their logic and their reasoning. And here's a little hint is that oftentimes parents don't understand what they're doing either, right? You know, in an effort to be merciful, which, which most every parent I've ever met, there's a God-designed component to parents that say, I want to be merciful to my kid. I want to do right by my kid. We all struggle in many ways, but in an effort to be merciful, some parents hover over their little precious Susie for much of her life, only to discover at some point that all that hovering, all that removing of obstacles has actually crippled her from developing needed skills to overcome challenges. So again, in an effort to be merciful, man, just, just kind of over made it easy for little Susie. And so sometimes parents overcorrect and they become drill sergeant parents. And they just say, okay, I've got I've to toughen up and we've got to tighten the reins and do these things. Only to discover all of a sudden Susie, their precious flower, is just sort of wilting and their spirit, her spirit's being crushed. And so then they kind of vacillate back over and, and eventually parent should leading, parenting should lead you to your knees crying out to your Heavenly Father, help! I don't know what to do. <clears throat> the reason that parents, in trying to show their own kindness and severity, vacillate back and forth between what seems like two extremes but really is all part of mercy is because of this. It's because we are not all-knowing, and it's because we live within the confines of time. We experience Time, just like anyone else. We can't see um, ahead. And because of that, life is a mystery. And because of that, we change course. I bring up that picture because as God's children, we often don't understand God's parenting. We're often clueless about what is happening. But we know that we can trust our Heavenly Father. If you want to jot this down, I think I may have put it in your notes, but Hebrews 12.5 says this. Actually, I don't think that one got in. Hebrews 12.5 talks about our parenting and God's parenting. Listen to this. In light of last week, the kindness and severity of our good, good Heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that, that his father does not discipline him? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Catch this. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. We don't always understand God's parenting. Unlike us as parents, though, God doesn't swing from overly merciful and then, whoops, I've got to correct it, overly severe and back and forth. He does not change. He is trustworthy, and he actually wants us to understand his character and what he's doing as a parent. I address you, church, this morning as legitimate children of God. As the remnant who refuse to worship the idols of this age, as those chosen by grace. I speak those words of truth over you precisely because we've been studying the book of Romans. Those are the truths that we glean from Romans. Those are titles we can hold on to. That's the calling that we can walk in because God has shown us, revealed to us who he is and what to do. I want to show you this morning sort of visually what we're going to do so I can kind of break down what we're going to talk about in our time together. There's our passage that we're going to look at. I want you to look at the word mystery. A mystery in the sense of the New Testament is most often, and it's certainly true here, it is a truth previously unknown, but now made known. So it's a revelation. It's not a mystery like we can't know this. This is truth that's knowable, but now has been revealed to us. I want you to look at three alls that are in this passage. Key to understanding what I'm going to talk about this morning, and key to understanding really Romans 9 through 11, is is understanding what this word all means in this passage. And finally, near the bottom, there are four references to mercy. So built into our title is this, God's mercy declassified. Do you see it? It's talking about mercy. It's talking about a mystery that is a truth that's now, that's now opened up to us so that we can see it. Something about mercy that we should keep in mind is this. Mercy is something that we are passive recipients in. We participate in mercy, but we don't drum up mercy to ourselves. In this passage, it says really, really clearly, in fact, that we receive mercy and that mercy is shown to us. So again, catch it. We are passive participants in mercy. The moment you work for it, the moment you deserve it, by default, it becomes a wage payment for something rather than mercy. What I hope that you will see as we look into this passage is this truth. I think this truth will kind of emerge from it. That through a merciful Savior, God is working His merciful plan... In his merciful timing. Now this truth is so important. I wanted you to get it right. That it is sitting in your handout. And I put a red box around it. So you'd be really, really clear. That this is super important to understanding what we're talking about. We are going to wade out into some deep waters of complexity. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to return back to the red box. In 15 minutes, if your brain is going, I don't have a clue what we're talking about, this is your anchor point. You come back to the red box, you read it, and go, okay, that's what, we're, that's what I'm trying to see from this. I believe that sentence emerges from the truth that I want to show you this morning from the text. So what about this mystery 
talked about in verse 25. We are made aware of mystery. The word declassified is a super accurate way to think about what Paul is writing about here. Unfortunately, I think the word declassified stirs up, at least for me, it stirs up images of UFOs, the Kennedy assassination, 9-11, and just different kinds of things. Watergate, maybe. What, what, what happens with the word declassified is this. We are used to those in power holding back information, classifying some things. And then we are prone in our culture now to do what with that? We are prone to go, what are you hiding? Like, why are you not letting us see that? In a different generation... Uh, I think there was a whole lot more trust that went on with those in power by the masses. Uh, You may have heard of something called WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks has created a culture of suspicion, and rightfully so, that our grandparents would never have dreamt possible. So now when we hear declassified information, there's there's a culture of mistrust. As I was studying the passage, uh, I thought of this late Tuesday that, that maybe I would call it this as I was kind of throwing around some different titles for this morning. Wednesday morning, I opened up a news app, and this is what I saw. This was the headline, that the Department of Justice was running 27 separate probes of damaging deep state leaks. This is everywhere. Since Wednesday, I had another one pop up on my news feed, talking about classified, declassified, top secret type stuff, and and the different sides of this whole discussion. You know, what is really going on, what has already happened, and who controls that information is really, really important, isn't it? It affects our everyday life. You control that information. That's powerful, powerful stuff. So sitting in church on a Sunday morning, maybe you are asking this question. Maybe you're settled on it. Is there someone who not only knows all of that information, but is able to do something about it? And the answer I would give you as a Christian is absolutely. It's called the one true God that we're worshiping this morning here. Now, quite possibly in this room, there are three kinds of people. There are those who are the convinced about what I just said. Is there someone who holds all the answers and can do something about it? The convinces, absolutely, the God of the Bible is not myth or fairy tale or wishful thinking. He is the most rational option for what we can see, what I've experienced, and what I can know. That's the convinced. Some of you in this room are the unconvinced. The unconvinced think this way. I'm not sure either way. It would be nice to think that someone has this whole storyline of my life in his great big hands. And that somehow my life and the circumstances I'm experiencing and my joys and my suffering somehow will have eventual meaning and purpose. But truth be told, I'm just not persuaded either way. Some of you are convinced this morning. Some of you are unconvinced. Some of you are unconvincible. Let me take a crack at the unconvincible. The unconvincible says, I am not open to a differing viewpoint. God does not exist. I'm not not open to investigation or questions because they only threaten or frustrate me. God is not real and nothing that you can say will change my mind or convince me. Here's an interesting point of fact. 
I have heard from testimonies of your own mouths that some of you were in that third camp, the unconvincible. And yet here you sit today in camp number one, the utterly convinced, worshiping that God that you said did not exist. That's a marvel and and sort of miracle of grace that's true. God is working his merciful plan. We've already stated this. Go back over to Romans 11 now, and this is where we will sort of camp out the rest of the morning. To kind of bring your brain back into this, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is hitting pause on sort of this great theology of who God is and what he's up to. And before moving on to sort of our response and how we live out these truths, he's taking this detour for three chapters, specifically talking about the nation of Israel. We're calling it the rejection section. So that word rejection on that wall represents this chunk of scripture, Romans 9 through 11. And here's the point. If Paul does not address the nation of Israel specifically, it leaves a giant yeah, but to everything that he's already written. Some of you know Romans 8 really, really well. God has used Paul to extend some promises that we as Christians centuries later hold on to and are very dear to us. Let me refresh your memory. If God is for us, Who can be against us? God who graciously gave us his son, how will he not graciously give us all things? He didn't withhold his son. And how about this, that nothing and no one ever can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do these promises sound familiar? Please say they do. You should, you should rehearse these in your mind. These are precious promises gifted to us. If Paul doesn't stop and address Israel specifically, it leaves a giant yeah but to everything he's just said. Because if you think about it, people would say, yeah, but what about the apple of God's eye, the chosen nation of Israel? They sure seem separated from God. They sure seem like God's against them. What about all this? So this is what Paul is wading into. An absolute key to understanding God's mercy, we're talking about God's mercy that's being declassified, it's being shown to us, has already been revealed. It's already been made known to us. So Paul's not working in a vacuum. He's working in a body of of knowledge and experience, and he draws from that. Let me show you Colossians chapter 126. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed, declassified, to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you want in on God's mercy, it's been clearly established. Remember that Paul wrote this after the life of Jesus here on earth. Here's what Jesus says very plainly in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not 
come in, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Paul has already written quite simply in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So not only is the path to salvation clearly laid out for us, demystified for us, but so the character, God's very nature, is laid out for us. Anyone who ever addresses this question has to lean on one of two things. What is God like? What is God like? You have to lean on revelation, someone making that known to you, or you are left to your own devices and what I would just call, summarize, guesswork. It's revelation or guesswork. We've illustrated it from this stage before by me thinking of a number between one and three trillion and having you guess at what that number is versus me whispering it in Penny's ear and Penny guessing it the first time easily because it was made known to her. Guesswork? Or revelation. Here's what Exodus, God revealed what he's like. Jim said quite truthfully last week, there is not a God of the Old Testament and then a kinder, gentler God of the New Testament. If you ever hear that, have your little heresy trigger go, wrong, that's not true. God doesn't change. Here's the God of the Old Testament revealing himself to his precious apple of the eye people, Israel. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, And worshipped. Do you hear it? Kindness, severity, one God. God of love, God of wrath, same God. If all we ever do is quote the part that suits us, which most often, if we're dealing with our own sin, is God of love, God of what we perceive kindness to be, and if it's someone who has wronged you in some way, God of wrath, God of justice, God of severity, then it distorts a clear picture of who God actually is. I love that Moses bows quickly. What an example to us. Remember, tremble at the word of God. Moses trembled at the word of God. Are these good and kind attributes of God? Absolutely. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. And he's not to be trifled with. He's the God of the universe. One of the things the scriptures make very plain about God, and it's important, it's been important for my faith journey and many people's faith journey, and that is that God is immutable. That's a big fancy $5 word that says he does not change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I want to show you that God's merciful character and God's merciful plan 
are made known. But the Jews would have nothing to do with the Messiah that is, and instead dealt with and created a Messiah that isn't. Remember, they were seeking that which can't be found. This is what can't be found. You cannot find happiness and wholeness apart from God. That search is going on in earnest all around us at all times. We are unceasing worshipers as people. Happiness and wholeness are not found apart from God, but that's exactly what the Jews were trying to do instead of submitting to God's plan. Now, what Paul has been hinting at, foreshadowing as a critical piece of Romans 9 through 11, is this idea. And here's the idea. The idea is that there is a future restoration of his countrymen, of Israel, that is coming. And just writing that would have like sent shivers down his spine. Look at what we've already looked at. He says, now if their trespasses means riches for the world, if the Jews' trespasses means that the Gentiles get in, listen to this, how much more would their full inclusion be? If their rebelliousness is good for Gentiles, how much more if they just got with the program? Look at verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, meaning the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then in verse 23 it says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, Gentiles, were grafted in to the cultivated olive tree, how much more will the natural branches? Do you see it? He's just building and sort of teasing toward this idea of saying there is a future restoration of Israel coming. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me in Romans 11. Paul's summarizing what he's been saying. Hardening of the Jews, yes. Gentile salvation, yes. And Jewish revival is on its way. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Pause. What is Paul's motive in revealing the mystery? He says, so that you won't be wise in your own sight. In your community groups, you're going to trace... This warning against arrogance in verse 18 of this chapter, against pride in verse 20, and now against conceit. Do you think there's huge danger in approaching the topic of salvation and the mysteries of God's timetable with a whole bunch of pride? I think there is. Here's what's interesting. Some really, really good people through the centuries have debated, dialogued, argued about Romans 9 through 11 and what God's plans for Israel are. Have you heard some of these before? Does this ring a bell at all that people argue over the future of Israel? I'm genuinely asking that question. I don't know how prominent this is. Bible geeks and pastors talk about this stuff all the time. I know it's not on CNN, but it's out there. If you ever hear this argument going on back and forth, watch for this. Romans 11, three times, warns about the dangers of pride and sin and conceit. 
Good people through the centuries disagree on what all Israel, on the timing and all of that. The wisest among us walk through these very challenging passages of scripture, holding loosely to their understanding of it, realizing that they could be wrong. Fools among us enter into this discussion filled with pride, understanding that they have a corner on the truth, and they arrogantly shout down anyone who disagrees with their interpretation of what the restoration of Israel is and God's timetable and God's merciful plan. Paul is warning against pride. Pride and salvation don't mix. And that's the warning that he's offering to us. This declassified mystery is following a timeline. There's a couple of key words that kind of show us a couple of things about the hardening of Israel that's currently happening. First of all, it's partial. He says it's a partial hardening. You know why we know this to be true? Paul. Individuals are coming to Christ. Paul is a Jew. He came to Christ. He trusted in Christ. But the nation as a whole is rejecting him, so it's partial. Secondly, it's temporal. This word until is very important. It sort of clues us in that there is a future unknown time to us when this will all change. Jesus sort of hinted at this in Luke 21 when he says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the, Gentile, by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So Jesus spoke in this sort of cryptic way that there are times and seasons unknown to us that are going to change some things. God is working his merciful plan on his merciful timeline. If you ever ask someone this question, do you know what time it is? You're asking that because you think they are not managing their time well. You are asking that because you think that they are running low on time for the amount of stuff that they have to do. Remnant, people chosen by grace. Let me assure you of something. God knows what time it is. And because God knows what time it is, you know what you get to do? You get to blow out all the stress that comes with thinking, God, do you know what time it is in my life? Our holding on to control of that which we don't have control over, stresses us out to no end. You can run to medication. I'm not against all medication, but we're an over-medicated country, I would believe. Or you can drop to your knees in prayer and say, God, I'm sinning the sin of anxiety right now. Would you teach me by your grace to cast all of my cares on you, trusting that you care for me and trusting that you have a timeline and that you understand what is going on? God understands the timeline in the Middle East. God understands the timeline in our own lives. Last weekend, we went to Apple Hill up near Sacramento, and I was in a corn maze of sorts, and I was following my three-year-old around this corn maze. And my three-year-old very quickly realized that corn stalks can be pushed right through. So she would hear her uncle's voice and go, oh, I'm going this way. And her little tiny massive body goes through corn very easily. I'm like fighting my way through the corn stalks. Hey, Uncle Eric. And then we'd walk around and go somewhere else. Oh, I hear a sibling over here. So I'm following my three-year-old around this thing. Uh, It's a little side note. The older kids in our family are running around harvesting the corn on the ground. 
uh, in a large family, it's waste not, want not. So they're like, free corn! You know, you think, you think I never fed them before. So literally, they're walking around like this with all this janky corn in their, in their shirt. That they're I'm like, put the corn down! That's not what this is about. I'll feed you next week. Um, so after the corn maze, we drive to another little spot. And there's another maze. And the best $3 that I spent on this trip was letting my two seven-year-olds go in this other maze because it was free energy burn for them. And this maze had a fence about this high. So for a seven-year-old, it really did put obstacles in it. It was a pretty marvelous maze, and they both ran, Kai and Eli ran opposite directions and went running around. Now, when you think about um, that, well, so really quick. So as they're running around kind of trying to find their way, what they realized eventually was this. They could reach up. Have you ever seen the, the guns on Eli? He's really ripped. But he realized that for the mere cost of one pull-up, he could peek up and kind of see where he was at. So so kind of like prairie dogs, every once in a while they'd kind of pop up and go, Kaya, Eli, Eli, Kaya. And they're popping their heads up, you know, kind of kind of doing this thing. You know, life is like a maze, but but here's the thing. We can't burst through it like corn stalks. We don't have that capability. We also don't have the capability to pop ourselves up and kind of get a vantage point of where we are for the cost of a mere pull-up. A maze is only mystifying, though, so long as you are trapped in it with no direction. Here's what happened at the second maze. At the second maze, it was set on a hill, and my daughter Briley and I are sitting at a picnic table watching the prairie dogs. We had a vantage point where we could actually see where they were. We could have called out directions to them to tell them where to go, but we are wicked, fallen sinners, still in process, saved by grace, and so we didn't. And we just relished the little prairie dog movement that was happening all around us. But that picture is a picture of the one who sits above the maze called life, the one who actually entered into our maze in the merciful Savior of Jesus Christ, showed us the way to go, and showed us, taught us, how to lean on the one true voice that sees the beginning from the end at all times. And we get frustrated that we can't break through the corn maze. And we get frustrated that we can't pull ourselves up by our own strength and figure out what on earth is going on. It either drives us into deception where we think we're still the king of our own castle and the master of our own domain. Or it drops us to our knees and says, help. And unlike Dave and Briley, there's a merciful one who sees the path. And guides us and gives us direction. What is being said of Israel and why should I care? Some of you are thinking that. This is the last week, by the way, of a really intense section of scripture. Perhaps one of the most intense sections of scripture to try to intellectually get your brain around. Thank you, church, for hanging with us as we've walked through this. It's been good, isn't it? It's been stretching for our brain. Next week, I promise you, it's like we step through a dark forest and just this glorious praise emerges. And then Romans 12, it's like we're running through a field of lilies with unicorns bouncing around all around us and a lollipop in our hand. It's just going to be, it's just going to feel so different. 
I know that you come in here and you go, gosh, I've got these hurts. I've got these concerns. I've got these joys. And, and here we are talking about Israel. It just doesn't feel very devotional. What is being said about Israel and why should I care? Let me take the second part first. The second part of why you should care is this. Quite simply, God thinks it's important enough to write it down. God considered this important enough to preserve in the Holy Scriptures through all of these centuries so that we might read and study it. Eventually you grow to a place of trust with your loving Heavenly Father. You go, I do not get you. And come to think of it, that's probably a good thing. But I trust you. So if you say this is good for me, I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to look at it. Do you hear the humility in that? Pride, conceit, arrogance, all warned about in Romans chapter 11, by the way, would say, what does this have to do with me? Flip, 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 flip. I'll skip by that. Romans 12. That's, that's more like it. I can, I can grab onto that this coming Monday. So in some sense, we just say by faith, God, the way you're treating Israel, what you're doing with Israel seems to really matter to you. Help it matter to me. Help me to understand your character and your plan and your mercy through the example of your people Israel. Now, to what is being said. We know that the Jews' hardening is neither total nor final, which means this. There's hope. There's hope for the most hardened Jew today who says that Jesus of Nazareth couldn't possibly be the Messiah. There's hope for that person. You know what's beautiful? You're going to spend Thanksgiving this next week with some people that in your flesh you say, there is no hope for Uncle so-and-so. Man, my niece, she is so far gone, there's, there's, no, there's no hope. That's a lie. No one you eat turkey with this next week is beyond the grace of God. That's a really powerful truth to cling to. Look at verse 26. This all is really important. It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Man, this has sparked so much commentary through the centuries. Some people say, oh, Paul got super, like, like crazy um, patriotic. And he just got carried away and he overstated what he was saying. And others say, no, it means something over here. Let me say with humility, let me offer up with humility what I think it means. I think that when he says that all Israel will be saved, what he's saying is this, not every individual Israelite is going to come to faith in Christ and therefore be saved from their sins. However, as a whole, Israel is going to return to God in a powerful way. So not every individual um, uh, Israelite, but as a whole. Here's what those who would say every individual, that must mean that every individual is going to come to faith. It leads to the error of universalism. What is that? Universalism says God's a merciful God. He loves people too much. God so loved the world that he wouldn't ever send anyone to hell. And eventually, everyone's going to get saved. Do you know the Bible does not teach that every human being is going to be saved? It actually teaches something quite different from that. If you take the whole flow of argument with Romans, this can't possibly be true. Because Paul has been meticulously arguing that just because you are born a Jew, just because you share the bloodline of Abraham, you are not in the family of God. You are not the true Israel. 
So it would go against everything he's written if that were true. If you look at a quick, a quick peek at the other two alls found down in verse 32, you'll note sort of the you, which equals Gentiles, and the they, which equals Jews. I want to read this for you in a translation called The Message. It's a paraphrase. It's Eugene Peterson saying, let me help my grandkids kind of understand this. It really opens it up, okay? You can hear this. Just close your eyes and listen. Then you can go back to your own scriptures and kind of see it. Here's what he says. There was a time... Not so long ago when you, Gentiles, were on the outs with God. But then the Jews slammed the door on him and things were opened up for you. Now they are on the outs. But with the door held wide open for you, Gentiles, they have a way back in. In one way or another, God makes sure that we all experience what it means to be on the outside so that he can personally open the door and welcome us back in. All have sinned and are on the outs with God. All are offered God's gift of grace. Some will walk through what Jesus called himself, the gate, and enter into salvation. The final piece to this puzzle is the how. How will Jewish revival take place? And um, he ends with these four references to mercy. And I say that mercy is declassified in this text. I would add this, sort of. It's sort of declassified. Here's why. We've already seen that God's severity and hardening of Jews is actually a part of God's merciful plan. It's led to life for most of us in this room who are Gentiles. There's no smugness that comes from Gentiles. What we see is that this pendulum was in the Jews' favor, and it has swung into the time of the Gentiles. But like a fourth quarter comeback, God is going to swing the pendulum back in favor of the Jews at some point. So we don't smugly sit here and think that we're all that because Gentiles are responding to the gospel in droves and those Jews don't have a clue what's going on. There's a hope and a prayer and an understanding that revival's coming for them. The second error that sometimes people gather from this is that there is some special method of salvation. What about the Jews? Is God going to save them in some different way? There is coming a day when the response of the Jewish people will dramatically change, but the change is going to happen in quantity, not in the method of salvation. The simple proclamation that we trust in Jesus and by grace we're saved through faith, that does not change. Here's why this is so important in Silicon Valley. Not hard to contextualize to our day and time, And have this conversation in our head. What about Aunt So-and-so? She's the nicest person I've ever met. She's the most giving, self-sacrificing person, far more than most Christians I know. What about her? She seems to have a relationship with God, although she denies the deity of Jesus. What about her? Is there some special way that she gets in? 
And the answer according to scripture, and Paul's going to back this up with his own quoting of the Old Testament, is that a merciful plan is being worked, and a merciful Savior was offered, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. How did you get into the ark and get saved from the flood? You trusted the words of Noah. What was Noah doing? He was proclaiming good news. There's a way out of the wrath that's coming. Well, I've got a grappling hook and I'm good at climbing. Can that save me? No. There's a ramp. There's a giant boat. you got to come this way. It's going to smell. It's a hard life. This is the way of salvation. There's no special method. God's laid it out plain as can be for us. Look at verse 26. The rest of it says this. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Here's what this is. This is a potpourri, good fall, autumn word to use, a potpourri of three Old Testament sections of scripture kind of mashed together. This is what Paul's doing. Here's what he's doing with this. He talks about who was coming. It was a deliverer from Zion. That is a specific person from a specific place. It's Christ's first coming when he was here on earth. What is he going to do? He's going to banish ungodliness. And why does this matter? Because it establishes God's unbreakable covenant, which he promised, which is the forgiveness of the sins. Now take those three ideas together. It sounds just like the Christian gospel. Jesus, the Jew, will be a champion who comes to defeat sin, draws people to repentance, forgive their sins, and cleanse their hearts. Paul was grabbing from the Old Testament and saying, this is the plan. This is the merciful plan that God is going to do. Friends, what this does is this leads us to worship. I say that on the one hand, this passage declassifies mercy, but I say sort of because the the, the truth of the matter is um, there is coming so much more. To put it this way, there's sort of another folder behind it. We think, oh good, we have one folder of God's mercy declassified. Uh, Guess what? There's another one coming behind it that we don't know yet. We're in the time of the Gentiles, whatever that means. There's coming a day when a shift is going to happen. And if you read on and on about God's mercy, I suspect there are folders more <laughs> behind these two on the screen. This centers us, and it's great that it leads us right to a central piece of Christian worship. Let me have the band come on up right now. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. One of the things I want you to get your head around is this, that there is actually more to mercy than what's been revealed on the cross, and there's more to mercy than what's been revealed in the scriptures. This experience that we're about to partake in, this experience we're about to participate in, is an act of worship. God assures us that this love that we can't comprehend, this mercy, is new every single morning. If I were to ask you if you understand the the depth and breadth of the Pacific. You could say yes, but you'd be lying. You sort of understand it. You may be able to get some charts and some numbers out, but man, you jump on a plane and you start flying somewhere and you go, yeah, woe is me. I don't really understand the Pacific. If you understand the mercy of God and there's no mystery left, hear me, friends. I suspect you're tasting a counterfeit. 
If there's no wonder left, if there's no mystery left to the mercy of God, isn't it probable that God is a God in your own making, your own small understanding of what mercy would look like to you walking through that maze? I really pray for us as a church today, God, would you help us recapture the wonder if it's gone? Would you help us kind of see broader than what is this morning? We're going to sing a song, and as we do, I want you to ponder this thought. Um, These elements that we're about to take are really, really simple and really, really common, but they are significant. Jesus takes bread, an everyday thing to to feed and, and sustain on, and he says, this is my body. And he says, broken for you. And then he hands it out. Take and eat. And then he would take the the cup of wine and he would hold it up and he would say, this is my blood. The blood of the covenant. Take every one of you and drink it. As we sing this song, we're going to pass out these elements. I want you to hold these very simple, regular, uh, unspectacular elements. And I want you to marvel at this mystery of it. The moment that this enters my mouth and I chew it up and I begin to digest it, the moment I take this and I drink it, you know what's impossible? It's impossible to separate out these elements from my body again. I can never have these exact elements out in in their current form. Why? They become one with me. Jesus says, this is my body. Take it and eat, all of you. There's a mystery to what we're doing here this morning, friends. It says we become one with Christ in a way. Catch this. It's inextricable. We can't even separate out what part is me and what part is Jesus. I don't even know anymore. I just keep feasting on him, and I know that I'm being transformed from the inside out. That's a mystery. Here's the second thing. You are no more a Christian by being born in America than a Jew is because he was Jewish, that he now has a relationship with Jesus Christ. This mercy of God must be tasted personally. No one can take communion for you. No one can taste and see that the Lord is good on your behalf. Each and every person is invited to the table to celebrate, to commemorate Jesus' death in their place. And that's what we're about to do. Jesus Christ has overcome, and he will overcome. There's a component to this mystery, to this love that has one that we understand. But according to Romans 8, just a few chapters ago, even creation is longing for the day when all things will be made new, when he'll restore everything, and we'll see it clearly together. There's a component of communion that we know well, and it looks back, that we proclaim the Lord's death But the scriptures also teach us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so with this in mind and with this in hand, let's take this together, church, and let's remember the Lord's death, but let's also remember his coming again. Let's take together. Unless this just become routine, of course, you just take the juice after the bread. Let's marvel. Let's just take a pause. Let's marvel at what Jesus did that first communion. Let's marvel that today we participate with worshipers around the globe 
celebrating the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's take this together, church. I left our response time to the word. Let me take two minutes on this. We look at what God does, and here's what he does. He extends mercy to all. The invitation is out to everyone in this room. The invitation is out to every person you will lay eyes on this week. Everyone's disobedient. Everyone deserves punishment. Everyone is offered grace through the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he provides more than enough. Romans 8.32, I referenced it earlier, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? All things. What do we do in response to this? Here's what we do. We receive God's mercy. We receive it. We're the passive participants in this whole thing. God declares it is finished. We live in response to that reality. We don't strive and work for our salvation anymore. We lay that down. Secondly, we marvel at the mystery that God's revealed so far. I hope you have an eye, as Ben referenced heaven at the start, I hope you have an eye toward the future. Say, God, there are folders of mystery still yet classified that I'm not privy to. I can't wait to see how you're going to resolve this. And in the meantime, as we walk the maze, we call out to the one who sees it all. Would you stand up with me, church? I'm going to pray. And then as we dismiss, the band is going to lead in a song called Cry Mercy, which is a powerful, short little prayer that I want you to leave sort of having on your mind and hearts as we go. God, thank you so much for your mercy to us. God, we acknowledge that it's grander and bigger and more thorough than we could possibly imagine. God, would you keep us humble? Would you forgive us, God? I pray for a repentant heart of anyone who's been criticizing you this week, questioning you this week. God, you welcome us in. You reveal what we need to know. We hunger for that. We long for that. And we do cry mercy, God, as we walk out this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.